Amen. Hey, if you would, grab your Bible and get with me to the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in a seat somewhere nearby you. Grab that. And if you don't own one, leave with that. That is our gift to you. Exodus chapter 2. Last week, as we began uh, this study in the book of Exodus, you, you, you open your Bible to the very first page of the book of Exodus, and you are immediately met with this reality that the people of God are in the midst of intense suffering in Egypt. Now, um, um, uh, I want to comment more and and recap that suffering for us in a minute, but I want to say this to start. All of us in this room are acquainted with seasons of trial, hardship, and suffering. And and all of us in this room uh, um, uh, are acquainted with that at varying degrees of intensity. Uh, Sometimes we can walk into a season of trial, of hardship and suffering and pain, and though it is so hard in the midst of the season we're in, you can look out on the horizon and you can see some semblance of hope. You, you, can, you can look out and see, man, there might be a turning point out there. So as hard as this is right now, there's hope on the horizon. That's, that's what I'm calling a, a season of suffering. But for some of us in the room, you have been or you are in the midst of an intense bout of suffering, pain, hardship, and trial. And as you look out on the horizon, you don't see any hope in sight. It, it, it's like the, the suffering does not have an expiration date. That from your human vantage point, it looks like it's going to be suffering in perpetuity. Suffering that just goes on and on and on. My question for us today is, what do you do when you're there? Because when you're there in the midst of a suffering like that, the suffering itself is hard, but almost equally as hard as this this unknown that you're living in of will this ever end? Will we ever turn the corner? Will there ever be a turning point out there? I submit to us today, this is where God's people are as we make our way to Exodus chapter 2. Uh, last week, we, we saw this suffering in detail. Um, it, it said that the generation of people who knew Joseph, uh, the king and all those people, they had died, and a new king had come about, and this new king oppressed these Israelites. They, he forced them into harsh slave labor, and he put cruel taskmasters over them that drove this harsh slave labor. But also, the Israelites were living under the reality in Egypt in the day that there was this edict by the king that any of the Egyptians could cast an Israelite baby boy into the Nile River. They're living in the reality that their baby boys could be murdered legally by any of their surrounding neighbors. When we talk about the harsh reality that the people of Israel were living in in Egypt, this is the harsh reality we're talking about. But we turned the corner last week into the beginning of chapter 2 and there was hope. There was hope that there was a a, a baby boy who was born and whose mother hid him and he put, uh, she put him in a basket and laid him at the edge of the river and this boy's name was, was what? Was Moses. His His name literally means to draw out. Given that name by Pharaoh's daughter because she drew him out of the water, but given that name ultimately under the sovereignty of God because Moses would be the one to deliver out or draw out God's people from the land of Egypt. And so there was hope on the horizon that a deliverer had been born to God's people. And yet this this isn't a story of, and Moses grew up and Moses delivered the people and then everything went smoothly. Uh, Today, as we continue in chapter 2, we see that 
the people of Israel descend into a, a, a pit of despair, into the reality of this suffering, and from a human vantage point, which looked like would not have any end, because their deliverer who is born in the, the last part we looked at would go from a deliverer who would, who would commit a capital offense and be a fugitive on the run and ultimately settle in a land far off from the land of Egypt. Where is the hope in that? And yet as we come to the end of this chapter today, here's what we're going to find. There is hope. And the hope we're going to find is in these four verbs that the last two verses of Exodus chapter 2 unpacked for us. These four verbs of God and how he's going to act on, a, on behalf of his people in the midst of their suffering, which appears like it has no end. So where do you turn? Let me ask you, before we jump into this, where do you turn in the midst of suffering with no end in sight? What do you do then? And I just want to submit to us today that the answer to that question is not found ultimately in any human-centered wisdom. It is not found in any shallow cliches that we say during hard times of life. And it's not found in any way that we're going to look horizontally for help or hope in this world or other people. But I'm telling you today, if you've walked in here this morning in the midst of suffering, pain, hardship, that appears like it has no foreseen expiration date, there is great hope in four verbs that we see as true of our God at the end of this chapter. So stay with me to that point. Let's pray and let's get into it. Father, we ask for your help as we walk through this, Lord. We are here right now to feast from your word. We need your spirit, God, to drive your word into our heart in a very real, very tangible, and very worshipful way. God, help us. God, meet with us. God, we are here for you and you alone. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, pick it up with me. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, one day... When Moses had grown up. Now, let me just stop there already because it's important that we get our bearings a bit on what that phrase means, that Moses had grown up. In the book of Acts, we actually get a, a, some commentary on the life of Moses that helps us understand the, the, the periods of Moses' life. And so um, where we ended last week in Exodus 2, verse 10, Moses was born and he had been adopted into uh, uh, Pharaoh's daughter's household. Now in verse 11, we get this phrase that Moses had grown up. What we need to know is 40 years have passed. We're now looking at 40-year-old Moses. And so uh, um, one day when Moses had grown up, 40 years old, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And so Moses walks out, and he, 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 it, it literally says here, um, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. It's a, that's, a, that's an exodus-type phrase. Moses goes on a personal exodus, so to speak, and he goes out and he sees the plight of his people. And as he's doing this, as he's looking on their plight in general, he sees a specific instance in which one of these harsh slave masters is beating an Israelite, and the justice wells up in Moses, but that justice overflows in an improper way. And Moses murders this Egyptian, and he buries him in the sand. And so what you have right now, just, just stop and realize this. 
The one who last week we saw was born and supposed to be the deliverer of this people is now a murderer. And has now hidden and covered that murder. That though there was this justice inside of him that welled up and wanted to defend his people, that overflowed in such a way that was improper and sinful and inappropriate. And in fact, God would hand into this man's hands uh, some time from now some stone tablets with some words on them, uh, some pretty important commandments, one of which is do not murder. So what we have here. It's this hope that we ended with last week, that a deliverer has been born. He's now a murderer, and has covered that murder. But it gets worse for Moses here. Verse 13, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was what? What's your Bible say? Then Moses was what? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. And so the next day after this murder, Moses goes back out. And this time he sees not an Egyptian and an Israelite, but two Israelites. And he says to the one in the wrong, what are you doing? Why are you fighting your companion? Why are you hitting your brother? What is happening here? And the guy looks at him and he says, hey, who, are, who do you think you are? Are you going to kill me the way you did the guy yesterday? And Moses is afraid. Word gets to Pharaoh. And again, Moses' life is in, 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 at the hands of Pharaoh. Pharaoh wants him dead. And Moses flees. And so, here we have the one who God has born to be the deliverer, a convicted, or a, no, a, a, an accused murderer, a guilty murderer, and now a fugitive on the run, and, and it tells us where he runs to. Where does he go to? He goes to the land of Midian. And so just a map to get our bearings. You have Egypt on the other side of the Red Sea. You have the land of Midian. You have Moses now gone from the land of Egypt. Out on an exodus to Midian, the problem was all of God's people are still left in Egypt. In the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering, and in the midst of the, in the, midst of the harsh reality that constituted their life there. It, said that, it says that at the end of uh, verse 15, it says that Moses got to Midian, and then it appears like there's, there's kind of just this, in, you know, kind of an interesting tidbit here, but it's actually really important. He got to Midian, and he sat down by a what? But he sat down by a well. Now, if you were around here when we taught through the book of Genesis, you, you heard me say this phrase a lot. When you're studying, especially the patriarchs at the beginning uh, of the Old Testament, when you find a well, you find something really important that's always coming next. And the way we used to say that when we taught through Genesis is this, where there's a well, there's a there's a wife. Where there's a well, there's a wife. And so Moses, and this is really important here, because not only has he committed a capital offense, not only is he a fugitive on the run, he's about to settle down for life in Midian, away from God's call on his life to lead the people out. Look at what happens here, verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. 
The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have uh, come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughter, Son, where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And so what we had last week where this deliverer is born and and we're going, oh, here it is. It's all going to start rolling from here. We have looked at the oppression and the harshness of God's people. God has brought a deliverer on the scene. And what looks like it's headed in a great direction, all of a sudden, here's the reality we're dealing with now. That deliverer is a murderer, a fugitive on the run, who's now settled in a far-off land with a wife and a kid, and has settled down for life there. And from the vantage point of an Israelite back in Egypt, where's the hope for deliverance? As their cries continue to go up to the Lord, it seems that this plan for hope that we had is so far off, both literally and figuratively. Before I get to verse 23, and a couple things I want to highlight about our God, really, in the final couple verses of this chapter, I want to make some comments about what we've already read. I want to bring some application or bring some implications for us as we sit here today. The the first thing I want to note about what we've read is this. When we think about Moses, right, if you've grown up in the church or you have any sort of faith background, you think about Moses, you you have these like, you know, these grand thoughts of who Moses was and, and, and a lot of times appropriately so. But can I, I just want to call our attention and remind us of something here today. Moses was a murderer whose justice overflowed into an act of a, a complete lack of self-control to commit a sin of murder. This led him on the run and far away from the people of Israel in the land of Egypt. But if you know the rest of the story, and if you don't, teaser alert here, he's going to be back. And he's going to be used in a mighty way of God to lead God's people out. I want to call attention to that today. Because I want to say this, or I want to ask this question. What if perfection isn't a prerequisite to be used by God? And what if that's really, really good news for a really, really big room full of really, really big, imperfect people? Now, I, I, don't, I don't say that or I don't try to draw that implication to excuse any sin that the Lord is working on in our life that he wants rooted out. To, to not embrace any of the sanctification that God wants rooted out in our life. But I do bring that up to say this. I sit, in, I sit across the table of enough in ministry from people who are so paralyzed by the imperfection of their past 
that it's often paralyzing them from what God wants to do and how God wants to use them in the present and the future. And what if the good news of the gospel message is that the cross of Jesus Christ truly is powerful to cover the penalty of any of our past sin and imperfection? And what if our God is so powerful to redeem that in such a way that he then takes these people who've been redeemed by the blood of the cross and uses them for great purposes for his kingdom in such a way that when you look on that, you go, well, I know that person. And it ain't nothing to do with them. There must be a great God behind that. Amen? What if, what if perfection isn't a prerequisite to be used by God? And what if that's really good news for us? Related to that, uh, something I want to call note to here before we go on is this. I've I've made mention of this a bit. Um, Sometimes when you read the book of Exodus or you read any of the books of the Bible, in our humanity, we love to make heroes out of fellow men and women. You know that we love to build up heroes. And then when they screw up, we love to cut them down, right? Right? But one of the things we can do when we read the Bible is make big capital H heroes out of the people of the Bible. Can I just call our attention to where we find Moses here today? And can we use that as a reminder that the big hero of the book of Exodus is not Moses? The big hero of the book of Exodus is a gracious God who looks down on his people in in their bondage and who delivers them out of it so he can dwell with them as his people as they worship him as their God. And what if the only big H hero in all the Bible is the perfect son of God, Jesus Christ? And so as we study Exodus, we're we're reminded of that here today, that Moses isn't the big hero of this. Moses is the little H hero that the big H hero is using in the midst of this process. And then the, the last thing I want to I pull out before we move on is this. Moses is now off in Midian. Um, but that's not outside the providence and the sovereignty of God. That God is actually orchestrating something here to take Moses to Midian. Where God will use this as a training ground in the desert to prepare Moses for what God will call him back to do in Egypt. And when you look at the Bible again and again, there are these desert seasons and these wilderness seasons that God often takes people to to serve as the training ground for what God will often bring them back to do what he's called them to do. You, you, you don't despise the desert seasons because there's something God is doing to prepare his people in the midst of them. James Boyce says it well like this, Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning something, 40 years in the desert, Midian, learning to be nothing, and 40 years in the wilderness proving God to be everything. So listen to me now, if God has you in the desert where he's teaching you how to be nothing, and he's just stripping away and pruning and it's hard and it's painful, can I just encourage you, embrace the desert. Because God does not waste any season like that. And so here we have it. 
Moses is off in Midian, fugitive on the run. He's got a wife. He's got a kid. He's settling down. We know he will settle down there for 40 years. And if, if we've been following the narrative, following the story here, if we were watching this on a movie, it's like the camera has followed the events of Moses over to Midian. But now in verse 23, the camera is going to pan back to Egypt. And we're going to find the oppressive reality that God's people still find themselves in. Look at what verse 23 says. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel, what's the word? The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Now, I can't even fully in the English language communicate to us the intensity of the words that are chosen in this part of the Bible right here. When, when it says the, the people groaned because of their slavery, that word groaned is used mostly in the Old Testament in the book of Lamentations and scattered throughout the prophets. It's a word that is uh, always associated with deep, deep, intense spiritual and physical agony. We know this to some level. Because when we've seen people in intense pain in such a way that the way they're vocalizing that pain has moved past words and it's moved only to groaning, we know there's a depth of pain there, do we not? And so the people of Israel are groaning and they are crying out to the Lord, but hope ahead. Look at how verse 23 ends. And after I read this, a hearty amen from all of God's people. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. That wasn't super hearty. Kind of weak. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Amen, amen, amen. Now, the chapter could end there. And if it did, we would be relatively comforted. But if the chapter ended there, we would have a temptation to end with some sort of shallow understanding that we have a, we have a God whose, whose cries are heard. Our cries are heard by God. But what I love about this chapter is it doesn't end there. And this statement that their groans and their cries have come up to God is now followed by these four verbs of God. That God, as he hears the groans and hears the cries, he is not passive in that hearing. But this chapter closes with four verbs, boom, 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 of how God is going to act on this. How God is going to draw near to this. How God, in, in, in their cries coming up, is going to come down and act. Listen to me now. If you have walked in here in the midst of one of those times of suffering with no hope on the horizon, you have to cling to these four verbs of God. If you're in here today and you will find yourself one day in a season of suffering with no hope on the horizon of it turning the corner, you have to cling to these four verbs of God. People will throw man-centered wisdom to you when you're there. People will cast shallow cliches when you're there. You'll look and feel about for some horizontal help. I'm telling you, the only place is in understanding the character and the nature of our God as explained by these four verbs right here. Should I? So I should tell you what the four verbs are. 
Let me say it like this first. When my suffering won't end, he hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows. When my suffering won't end, when it just won't end, when every day you get up and it's still there, and every week you look out ahead and you go, I don't see any hope in sight. He hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows. This is how the word says it here. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and then I love how this chapter closes. And God, what? He knew. Let's unpack those four so we can let them rest deeply as anchors to our soul. First one, our God hears the groanings of his people. Do you believe that? Now let me ask it, let me ask it a little more deeply. We know we should believe that formally. Do we believe that functionally? It's a really important distinction, especially for a lot of us with a lot of church upbringing and there are things we know we should believe formally. But our formal theology has to crash through into our heart in such a way that it's street-level theology, that it's functional. I believe the Lord hears the cries and groanings of his people. I believe it at the street level. I believe it as I'm living through life. I believe it as I'm crying out to him, impassioned Dare I say with anger at times, and I believe it when I'm so exhausted that all I can get out is whispers. I believe he hears. I believe he's listening. Psalm 18 says it in the words of King David like this. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. David believed it. I want to believe it like that. But now... In, in this reality that our God hears the cries of his people, he hears their groans. Let me, let me make this point here. God does not hear as just some passive father. God does not hear as some disinterested father. Now, a, a moment of transparency for you. Don't judge me too much, okay? We have, we have four kids. You might know the story of our family. They came relatively quickly, so we had a lot of little kids in the house all at once, which meant a lot of little kids all in one house means a lot of, a lot of crying. I could do something as a dad that was borderline miraculous. I could just kind of like turn off the crying. For my amazing wife and amazing mother of my children, she didn't have that. But I could just kind of turn it off. And there'd be nights we'd be we'd put the kids to bed and, and I turned off the, the crying mechanism of my ears and they'd be up crying in their beds and we'd just let them cry to, themselves to sleep a lot of nights. And, but there are some nights where all of a sudden there'd be a, a cry from one of our kids and Erica would jump up and she'd be running towards the stairs and I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? She's like, they're crying. I'm like, they cry all the time. She's like, she's like, and she would say this, no, that's a hurt cry. And I'm like, as a dad, right, dads, you're like, what are you talking about? A cry is a cry, a cry is a cry. 
And sure enough, like you'd get up there and there'd be a kid like hanging off a crib or something. And you're like, I'd be like, how did you know that? She's like, I don't know. I just know. My wife, the mother, awesome mother of my kids, was intimately acquainted with the cries of my kid. Listen to me now. Our God is intimately acquainted with the cries of his kids. He, he, he goes, that's a hurt cry. That's a cry of despair. That's a cry of deep sadness of the heart. That's a cry of utter lostness. That's how he hears. And his hearing is, is, is coupled with this next verb here, this next verb of God. And God heard their groaning, and God, God remembered. What did he remember? It's right there in your Bible. What did he remember? He remembered his what? He remembered his covenant, his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Second thing, write it down is this. Our God remembers the covenant with his people. We sang about this today. God is a covenant-making God. God is a covenant-keeping God. We, again, we know this formally. God can never break a covenant that he makes. It's impossible with the character of who he is. The promises God makes, God keeps. And it, and, it, and it notes that God remembers this covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. In Genesis chapter, fe- uh, chapter, chapter, fe- chapter 15, you see this covenant that God makes with Abraham. He looks at him before he owns a spot of land, and he looks at him before he has any offspring, and he says, Abraham, all of this land is going to be yours. And from you I will make descendants, and from you an entire nation will arise. And from this nation, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is the promise he makes to Abraham. And then something wacky happens in Genesis 15. If if you've never read it, go read it this week. He has Abraham split these animals right down the middle. and, And he lays one half of the animal on this side, and he lays one half of the animal on this side. And the custom of that day was when a a covenant was made between two parties. Both parties would come together and they would pass through these these killed and divided animals, and they were signifying, should one of us break this covenant, may we be like these dead animals laying beside us. And so the animals are split, and this covenant, this beautiful scene of a covenant is happening. And then what did God do to Abraham? He put him to, best Steph Curry right there, right? He put him to sleep. And as Abraham is sleeping, God himself passes through these animals in the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, and in doing so, communicates to Abraham and his, all, of, all of his descendants, you never could have kept your side of the covenant. I will keep both sides. This will never be dependent on your faithfulness. I will be faithful to you, though you all will not remain faithful to me. And it says here that God remembers this covenant with Abraham. Now, when it says he remembers, he's, he's not dealing with a fallible mind like ours. We, do, we don't know where our keys are every morning. It's not that he forgot. What this word is saying is God has brought it front of mind to act upon it. God remembers the covenant with his people. It's front of mind, and he acts upon it. And can I give us some really good news if we walked in here as sufferers here today? 
we sit here today under the hope of the promise of the new covenant. That our sin has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That Jesus has kept both sides of the covenant on our behalf. That he came and he lived the perfect life that you and I cannot live. We haven't lived and we never will live. But then he died the death deserving of sinners atoning for the penalty for our sin in such a way that he says, all this is yours by faith. The moment you believe, the moment you put your trust of your salvation, of your eternity on the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the victories he's won for us in this, we are in Christ and we are people of the new covenant and we will be with him in eternity forever. We will see him as the treasure of eternity and we will be with him in the treasure of eternity. But listen, this matters and has deep application for you if you're suffering here today. Because what I want to say, if that is true, and you are in Christ, and you are covered by the blood of Christ, you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's this. If your suffering never ceases on this side of eternity, and I know that sounds awful, but if it never does, It is a sure reality that it is over the moment you're in the presence of your Savior, King Jesus. Pain will last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. And if that morning isn't until the presence of Jesus, guess what? The joy of the morning is coming. God remembers the covenant with his people. So God hears, God remembers, but then as verse 25 starts, it says this, God saw the people of Israel. You know, God sees you. I think when life gets hard and painful and you're walking through deep water, suffering and trials, you can ask, like, does anyone, does any, can any, does anyone see it? Does anyone see it? God sees you. And this coupled with this reality that he hears you is a very powerful reality. If you've ever been in a situation where you've heard the cries or the screams of someone hurting or in trouble, but you can't see where they are, what, what, what do you typically do? Everyone starts to get up and everyone starts to scramble and everyone starts to look around and everyone's searching for the person crying out for help and it's when they finally see the person that they sprint into action. I, I want to encourage us with something. The God who hears us simultaneously sees us. As the cries rise up to him, he doesn't have to go searching around looking, where, where is that, where is that, where, what's happening? He sees. And in his seeing... The chapter ends with this, and God knew, or God knows the suffering of his people. Is that deeply comforting? One of the hardest things that you have to hear when life gets really hard is the well-intentioned but often missing the mark statement of, hey, I know what you're going through. And because you're filled with the Spirit, you don't punch people in the mouth. 
But if you've heard that and been in really dire straits and you've heard it again and again, what you want to say gently back is, I don't, I don't know if you do. That even if we've been through similar circumstances with other people, it's very rare that we would know exactly what someone's going through. Can we take comfort here today that God knows? He knows in his omniscience, in his character of being all-knowing, he knows exactly what you're going through. And, and be very comforted by this, he knows even better than you do. Partner that with this reality that the Savior we follow is acquainted with suffering. Mocked and ridiculed, spitten and beaten, spit on and beaten. Tortured, nailed to a cross, crucified. That the God, the character of the God we cry out to is acquainted with suffering and perfectly knows what you are walking through. When my suffering won't end, he hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows. I'm telling y'all, there is no other bedrock place to anchor into when life brings you to suffering with no hope of its end in sight than anchoring your soul into the character of a God who sees, who remembers, who hears, who knows. So can I ask this before we sing, just would, would you be bold enough today, if you needed that reminder today, would you slip your hand in the air? Would you slip your hand in the air? Can, I, can you just keep your hand in the air? Just keep your hand in the air a minute. I just want to preach the character of our God directly to you. I just want to look at you and say today what the word of God has said to us today. With your hand in the air, he hears your cry. He hears you when you're crying out in deep anger like you see the psalmist do at times where you're questioning why, oh Lord, and how long, oh Lord. He hears, and he hears the exhausted whisper where you're so done and you don't even know. You, you just, the groans can't even capture it. The Spirit of God is groaning on your behalf. He remembers every covenant he's made. The most pointed of which is the new covenant that the blood of Jesus Christ has covered us of our sins. And if you've trusted in him, the hope of heaven is held out for you. And as painful as it is for me to say to you, I want to be real, I want to be a realist in this. If the pain never subsides on this side of heaven, it will in heaven. It will in his presence. He sees you. And he knows. You're right. If no one else knows and you feel like you're the only one isolated on a plane, if you feel like your family is just, no one can possibly relate or understand. Listen, your God knows. In his omniscience, he knows. And in the reality that he sent his son to walk a path of suffering, he knows. So church, if you would just stand. And as we close, I want us to sing the truths we've already sung this morning. God of Abraham, you're the God of covenant, faithful promises. 
remembers, he sees, he hears, he knows. Let's sing that together.